where Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, there are a number of uh, attempts at explaining this verse, some more popular than others. What does this mean? What does Christ preaching his spirits in prison mean? You know, I've had discussions with people about this verse, uh, and, and discussions had all kinds of ideas as to what this verse means. What is Peter trying to say? When Christ died, he went into hell, into the grave, and for three days, he preached to all these dead people the gospel. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those doctrines that everybody believes. If I were to ask you a show of hands, if I were to ask how many people believe the resurrection, everybody will raise their hands. And if you don't raise your hand, we would think there's something seriously wrong with, with you. Yeah. Everybody believes in the doctrine of the, of the resurrection. And it seems to me to be that because it's such a basic fundamental belief that everybody subscribes to, it doesn't seem to get talked about all that much. Because after all, everybody believes it. And it seems to be something that doesn't often get mentioned, at least in my experience. I don't really find or hear too many sermons about the resurrection because everybody believes that. Let's talk about all these other things, maybe the controversial things, the things that people don't believe, the, people that, the things that people should believe. And somehow the resurrection kind of gets lost in the way. And so today we're going to talk about what we all believe. But just because we're going to talk about it, I don't want you to tune out because hopefully we're going to see it in a fresh an exciting light, because we're not, just, we're not just going to talk about the resurrection, we're going to talk about the power Amen. of his resurrection. And uh, perhaps the other thing that uh, we as uh, Sabbath keepers, uh, perhaps a, a subconscious reason why we shy away from the resurrection is that uh, Sunday keepers, their main reason for keeping Sunday is what? Because Jesus rose on Sunday. And so maybe subconsciously we feel that emphasis on the resurrection kind of might help the Sunday cause. And maybe we just won't emphasize that too much. We'll just emphasize the Sabbath. Maybe that's a subconscious reason. But emphasis on the resurrection does not emphasize Sunday in any way, shape, or form. Amen. And so today I'm going to emphasize the resurrection. And uh, I hope to do so uh, in a way that will shed some biblical light on a topic that we might then see it in a fresh perspective. And in so doing, I also want to look at a very important connection that has to do with the resurrection. And this connection is the very final message that is given to this world. And that's the message of righteousness by faith. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with righteousness by faith? Is there a connection? And if so, what is this connection? So we want to look at the practical aspects of the resurrection because too many times, brothers and sisters, we have reduced the resurrection simply to a historical fact that we assent to in our minds. Today, we don't want to look at it like that. We want to look at the power of the resurrection. So we'll go to our first text. This is basically a brief overview of what we're going to look at. Let's look at the details of that together. And the, the title of our... Uh, study comes from this verse in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. And it says here, Paul speaking, he says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul here wanted to know a few things, didn't he? In verse 10, he says he wants to know Christ, but not only that, that was not satisfactory. He also wants to know the power of his resurrection and then also the fellowship of his suffering. What is it that Paul wanted to know that he refers to as the power of his resurrection? Interesting, because he, he says, I want to know him, but not just that. I also want to know this thing called the power of his resurrection. And I pray that we all want to know that as well. And in the previous verse, he links that with the righteousness, which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by Faith. We're going to see what the connection between those two uh, today, hopefully, what that connection is. What does the power of the resurrection really mean? Do you believe in the resurrection only or do you believe in the power of the resurrection? So we want to explore that. And to give us a little bit of an idea, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to express high and lofty and grand themes that are of a divine nature in human terms. It's a bit hard. Paul tries to paint a picture of, of what this power of the resurrection really looks like in a number of places. One of those places is in Ephesians. So let's look at that. And this gives us a little bit of an insight as to what this power looks like. What did it accomplish? Ephesians chapter three, uh, chapter one, I'm sorry, verses 19 down to 21. He says here, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power, speaking about God the Father, to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrote in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's a grand picture, isn't it? Amen. And it talks about this great and mighty power. That's the power of the, of the resurrection. This is what it accomplished. And Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's just a picture of what it looked like. Now, interesting th uh, interestingly enough, it says here that this power is exercised towards whom? It says towards us. And then it gives a qualifier. What's the qualifier? At the beginning, are you with me? It says this exceeding great greatness of his power. This is a pointer here. To us word, who what? Believe. Believe. So believing, having faith, gives us access to this great power that Paul says, I want you to look at this great power. It raised Christ from the dead. Not only that, it raised him up to the highest heaven, far above every principality and power and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Paul is trying to give us such a grand picture of what this power accomplishes. And then he says something. He says, you know what? I'm giving you this picture so you can understand that this power is actually towards us who believe. That is great news. So what does that mean? What does it mean when it talks about the resurrection of Christ? That's what he's talking about here, the resurrection of Christ, when God the Father raised his son. And he says it raised him far above every principality and power and might and dominion. What does that refer to? Principalities and powers and mights and dominions. What's Paul referring to here? One person knows. Think about it. A little later in the same book, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against what? Principalities and powers and all these things there. What's that referring to? The spiritual forces of darkness. Satan and his angels. 
So Paul is here saying that the resurrection of Christ accomplished something in the spiritual world as well. It placed Christ above all these principalities and powers, above Satan and his angels. Well, Christ was not ever below them. So what's Paul meaning? The resurrection of Christ accomplished a re-emphasis and an affirmative act of showing that Christ is indeed above all those. Amen. We want to see why. And what significance does that have for us today? And what does that have to do with righteousness by faith? That's the questions we're asking, right? Let's look at this particular aspect a little closer. I want to go to a, a passage here in the scriptures before we read it. Let's just go back. Before we read the passage, this is one of those passages in the Bible that are very puzzling. Okay? Uh, the, the puzzling passages in the Bible are those that we read and, and we just don't understand what it says and we just keep reading. Maybe we'll understand it a little bit later. But they leave a puzzling point in, in our mind. This is one such passage. Let's read it together and see if you found it puzzling or not. First Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 17, beginning there. It says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Spirit. So here Paul is writing to encourage the believers, right? He's saying it's better if you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then to encourage them, he says, look at Christ. He suffered. As a matter of fact, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened. What does that mean? Brought to life. Brought to life or resurrected, right? So he's talking about the resurrection. He was, he was resurrected by the Spirit. He's trying to encourage believers. And then he goes on, verse 19. He says, by which also, let's put that up. He says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And verse 19, really, is the puzzling passage. You ever wondered about this verse? Where Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, there are a number of uh, attempts at explaining this verse, some more popular than others. What does this mean? What does Christ preaching his spirits in prison mean? You know, I've had discussions with people about this verse. Uh, and, and discussions had all kinds of ideas as to what this verse means. What is Peter trying to say? And what is Peter trying to say that is supposed to encourage yes. the believers yes. who are going through suffering? Because yes. that's the context. Isn't that right? And that's why we looked at a little bit of context. We want to look at that. I just want to share with you. A couple of the most popular explanations. The most popular and common explanation or interpretation of this verse is the one that most Christians subscribe to, the one that is found in the Apostles' Creed, which teaches that when Christ died, he went into hell, into the grave, and for three days he preached to all these dead people the gospel. Okay? Now, some of you who are not from an Adventist background, if you've come from another church and become an Adventist, you'll be familiar with that. Isn't that right? It's in the creed. Now, uh, some of us, we, we uh, think, well, that's a little bit too far out there. That's obviously wrong. Now, there's a reason why that's wrong, of course, but uh, we have maybe a more uh, familiar interpretation is that actually, no, the verse is talking about Christ preaching, correct, but not to dead people. He was preaching to people who were alive in the time of Noah. And that's a more uh, kosher Adventist explanation of the verse. But uh, the problem, again, is 
there are a number of assumptions that are made when explaining this verse. Very, very grave assumptions that we all miss. Because here's the key, whatever our interpretation of this verse is, it has to fit with the context. It has to do with helping believers go through suffering. What does Christ preaching through Noah, of course, what does Christ through Noah preaching to the antediluvians have to do with helping me going through suffering right now? And the reason why some of these interpretations fail in capturing the meaning and in looking at the context is because of some assumptions. And I, I think as Adventists, we're all familiar with assumptions. The Millerite movement made a very grave assumption as to the meaning of one word. Remember what that word was? Sanctuary. Sanctuary, isn't that right? They, they read sanctuary and they understood Earth. Now, no one went and did a Bible study and see what the Bible says. They just assumed it was earth. And they had a great big disappointment based on that assumption. In this verse, there are a number of assumptions that are made that are so natural. The way we read the verse, we say, well, that's obviously this and that's obviously that. And therefore, it must mean this. And we try and look for an explanation using these assumptions that we make. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I just want to explain this uh, quickly. We want to look at some key words here. It talks about spirits, it talks about prison, and it talks about preaching. Yeah. We know who is doing all, that's Christ. What are these spirits, or who are these spirits? When we, when we read spirits, the, all the interpretations agree in assuming that spirits is referring to people, human beings. Whether they be dead, or whether they be alive, but it is people. The only problem with this assumption is Nowhere in the scriptures are human beings ever referred to as spirits. Did you know that? In the New Testament, there is not one instance where a human being is referred to as spirit. So on what basis do we assume that that's what this means? Okay, so it must mean something else. Well, we might say, well, what's that mean? Well, the, who are referred to as spirits in the Bible? Well, the Bible does talk in uh, the book of Hebrews about a, a class of creatures that are called ministering spirits. Right. Who's that referring to? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation? The New Testament also talks about unclean spirits. Right. Isn't that right? These are evil angels. The Bible also talks about God being spirit and that God has a Holy Spirit. But not once does it talk about human beings as spirits. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Human beings have a spirit, but they are not a spirit. You with me? Okay, there's a great distinction. Here it talks about spirits. So in other words, this is pointing us in the direction that the spirits being referred to here are not people. That's right. Dead or alive, they're not people. That's they're actually angelic beings. Yeah. Now, which kind of angelic beings are they? They were once disobedient, isn't that right? So we're talking about angels that have fallen. Interesting. Okay. Well, what about in prison? Mm -hmm. The demons are in prison. Yes, are. What's the Bible say about that? Because we want to break down the meaning. Let's have a look. That's right. Let's go to Second Peter. Let's uh, look. Are you with me so far? Amen. Okay. There's a there's a grave silence in the room. I'm just want to make sure everybody's with us. Second Peter two four. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The demons here are represented as reserved unto judgment or in chains of darkness. Now, there's an interesting word here. The word uh, where is it? Hell. Okay. What's this? What's the word hell mean? 
Hell means the grave, the Greek Hades, all right? But there's only one problem. It doesn't mean that here. The word hell here, it's not, I'm not sure why they translate it this way, but anyway, if you look it up in the Greek, it comes from a Greek word called Tartarus, and it only appears in the Bible here and nowhere else. And it doesn't mean the grave. The demons are not in the grave, okay? What does it mean? The, uh, if you look up the meaning, you'll find that it says the Tartarus is a place of restraint and it means to incarcerate, hmm. awaiting final judgment. Uh, and that's what the rest of the verse talks about. Is that, yeah. It represents right. them as in chains of darkness, reserved. What do you think about when you think of incarceration and chains? Jail, Jail or prison. prison, correct? Amen. Now this is not a physical, literal prison that God has put right. demons in. This is a prison of circumstances. Because you see that in Revelation 20 where a great angel comes down with a chain and yeah. binds up Lucifer for yeah. a thousand years. Yeah. That's not a literal chain, right? There are circumstances and limitations put on Lucifer as a result of the death of all the wicked and the translation and ascension of all the saints. You with me? So this, this chains here, this, this hell or this uh, this prison where these demons are is really a limitation. In other words, there are checks on the demons. There are limitations. They are bound in a certain way, awaiting the judgment. And the Bible represents their condition as being in prison. That's not the only place that says that. Let's look at another example. Jude 1.6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Same thought, right? So now we've identified that these demons, these spirits, are bound until God judges them. And uh, aren't you thankful for that? Amen. That God has put limitations on the demons. We don't realize what that really means. If there were no such limitations, none of us would be here in this room today. Look at the story of Job. What did Satan want to do with Job? Utterly kill him. But God had set certain boundaries. And in order for Satan to do anything to Job, he had to negotiate a change in the boundaries. Isn't that right? And God said, okay, we're going to put it here. You can do so much, but no more. And this is, you can, you put it here so much and no more. God has a restraint right. on the evil powers of Praise darkness. God. Hallelujah. Amen. If we only realize every moment because of that restraint, we live, we breathe, we can do so yes. much yes. because there is that restraint. Amen. They can still do a lot of evil within those restraints, but there is a prison, so to speak. So that's the picture that is Amen. being given here. Okay. Amen. And that's an encouraging thought. We're going to see what the ramifications of that are. So they're not just free to do whatever they wish. So we found out who the spirits are. We found out what the prison is, correct? Yes. Well, let's go back to that verse again. Yes. What about preaching? Because I'm sure you're thinking, you know, we're all thinking people, and I want you to think as we're going through this together. It says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And you might think, well, what is the point of preaching to demons? Because when we say the word preached, what do you think of? Evangelism, conversion, the gospel, saving souls. We, we pre that's what preaching is what we're doing right now. We're preaching, preaching the gospel. The only problem is that's another assumption. Peter does not say there what is preached, does he? So on what basis do we assume that it's the gospel? Correct? He doesn't say what is being preached. 
As a matter of fact, if you look up the meaning of that word, you will find that the word actually means to announce or to proclaim or to herald. Now, you can use it to preach the gospel if the gospel is identified as what is being preached, but it's not. So it's not safe for us to assume. So in other words, Peter is saying something was announced, proclaimed, and heralded to all the demons that are in prison. And that something that was announced is linked with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the context, isn't that right? Because the previous verse just said he was put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened or resurrected by the Spirit. Well, what does that really mean? You see, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Christ made an announcement, a very loud, deafening, ear-shattering announcement to all the hosts of darkness. What was that announcement? Victory! Game over. Defeated. That's the announcement. Now, here's the point. Peter is not trying to give us the picture that Christ literally and, and went and said anything to anyone. He didn't go and preach anything. The event itself served as an announcement, as a proclamation to all the hosts of darkness. And that proclamation is game over. What's that? Death knell. That's exactly right. Now, the context of the passage, we're going to come back to that. I just don't want you to miss it. But I want to keep reading the passage, the next few verses. The context of the passage bears that out very, very clearly. Let's keep reading. Verse 21 down 22. So the same passage is continuing. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Do you see the context? Yes. Now, if you drop the parentheses out, the parentheses kind of get in the way. If you drop the parentheses out, notice what it says. That baptism saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a very important link here. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is linked with baptism. And we know that when a person is baptized, as we shall see, they die into the death of Christ, they rise into his resurrection. There's something here. Peter is saying, this is what you need to remember when you go through trial, through suffering. And it's better if you suffer for good than for evil doing. And look at Christ. Look at his resurrection. That's what we're going to look at. So let's, let's put together all the things that we found. I just want to go over this quickly again so we don't miss it and uh, see what this announcement is. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, 17 to 19. Same passage we already read, now we're gonna look at it explained and what we've found so far. And we'll just read the context again. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And then verse 19, by which also, and by which what? What's the event that he just referred to before? He was resurrected by the Spirit. So by which resurrection also he went and preached or proclaimed his victory unto the Spirit, the fallen angels in prison or who are reserved in chains unto judgment. Can you see that? So the resurrection of Christ, brothers and sisters, made a deafening proclamation of utter defeat to Satan and his angels. It was the doom and the end of the kingdom of Satan. You realize that? The victory in the great controversy between Christ and Satan was accomplished when that event took place. At the resurrection morning. I want to explore that a little bit more because brothers and sisters, this is the power 
of his resurrection. And this power of his resurrection is exercised to us word who believe. In other words, the power that God wants to give us is the victory over Satan that he accomplished and that he announced to all these demons. They all know what happened. They remember very well that Sunday morning what they all did yes. and what happened. I want to look at that a little bit as well. But you with me so far? Yes. The death knell of the kingdom of Satan. The king of Satan was broken and shattered and decimated completely by that event. Yes. Never underestimate the resurrection. That's what, that's what I hope to convey to you today, that the resurrection is not some basic standard doctrine that everybody believes. Brothers and sisters, it is the heart of the victory of Christ. Amen. It is the crowning achievement of the victory. So much so that every demon in hell trembled when they heard the news that Christ rose. They trembled. It was game over. He went into their very domain and made a loud, loudspeaker announcement. You are defeated. I have won. He didn't do it with his mouth. He just had to rise from the dead. That's what the resurrection accomplished. Brothers and sisters, this is the power of the resurrection. And in light of that, that's what Peter is trying to say to the believers. He's saying, listen, you're going through some suffering. You're going through some trial. Christ, by his resurrection, announced defeat to all the kingdom of darkness. Therefore, never mind if you're going through some trouble and trial that the devil's putting you through. Right. He is a defeated foe. Amen. Look at the resurrection. Amen. The resurrection is complete. And if you endure in like manner, you will have a glorious victory like our conquering king. Amen. He conquered the one who's putting you through all this trouble and trial. His message is to give hope and courage to the believers. And to give them hope and courage, he's trying to grasp at some idea to encourage them with. And then he goes, of course, the resurrection. Look at the resurrection. The resurrection announced to all the demons of darkness, game over. So don't worry. Do you see what Peter's trying to say? Amen. That's the context of the passage. That's what he is really dealing with. Because we all go through trial, right? I don't need to ask you. We all go through suffering. Right. We all go through distress and heartache. And a lot of the times, uh, this heartache and stress and trial is caused by the enemy. To try and cause us all kinds of problems, to, to steal our faith, to, to bring in doubt and darkness and so on. And in the process, when we go through all these things, we begin to worry. And we begin to stress. And we begin to fret. And what are all these things? Fear. Right. Isn't that right? right. Fear. The, the purpose of, of the enemy putting suffering on, on, on all these things on us is to get us to fear. To have fear. And fear is a very, very per big problem because we're told, and we all know the verses... Perfect love casts out? Fear. And so Peter's trying to encourage these brethren as they're going fearing and why is this happening to me? Lord, I don't understand. Whatever it might be, I'm stressed, I'm worried. He's giving them the antidote for fear. And he's saying the antidote for fear is the resurrection. How is the resurrection antidote for fear? We're going to see that as well. So I just want us to keep that in mind. Because this is practical things that Peter is dealing with here. This is not just some theories we all subscribe to. He's using the truth to say practically, this is what it does in your life. This is the power of the resurrection. That the kingdom of darkness was defeated. Now I have news for you. I'm going to say something that's a little bit radical. It wasn't up till this point that the kingdom of darkness was defeated. You realize that? It wasn't until the resurrection of Christ. Up until that point, Satan still thought that he might win. You know that? And for 4,000 long years, Satan thought that he is securing his position more and more in the earth. 
more and more in the hearts of men as they're becoming more and more corrupt and as sin is taking deeper and deeper roots Satan was starting to believe that you know what we just might win this thing you realize that and that's why the contest was so severe when Christ was on earth and it wasn't until the resurrection praise God that Christ said there it is game over it was finished he was defeated at the resurrection and in his defeat it's very important you know when one army conquers another army and and they maybe not so much these days but back in the days when they used to fight and they would fight over a territory right and and the, the conquering army would, would push the enemy back and now they have more ground correct yes. and they go on retreat and uh, that's exactly what happened on the resurrection Christ gained more ground and the devil lost ground now that's very significant as we look at that because brothers and sisters, we're living on this side of this event. Amen. We're living on the vantage ground that Christ has gained when Amen. He overcame Satan through the resurrection. We're living in a more privileged time. You realize that? That's right. All these people before that event occurred were looking forward to that time. Now we're living in it. Satan has already been defeated. And I want to, to, I want to show you maybe what that means a little bit as, as we're going through that. But I don't want to miss the point that this event is a very, very important marker in the history of the great controversy. Very significant. That's the time we will all look back to, you know, in heaven when we sing the songs of praise forever. We will look back at that event and say, it was then that Satan was defeated. That makes a very big difference and a huge difference. Oh, if we only realized what that really means. It would be a very different case. You know, many times, the way things are running now, and Satan and what he's doing is very similar to what he was doing before he was defeated. You know why? Because God's people have failed yeah. to capitalize on the vantage ground that yeah. our Savior did. Yeah. We don't realize it. We're still living like we're still he is yet to be defeated. He's not yet to be defeated, brothers and sisters. Amen. That has been accomplished well and truly by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, you know what? I want to know the power of his resurrection. Where is the power of his resurrection today? Paul is dead. It's us who are alive today, right? Do we know the power of his resurrection? Amen. That's a challenge for all of us. Satan's kingdom was defeated. Let's look at a few other thoughts and just see exactly what that really means. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is a very popular verse for those who don't like the Sabbath. I think we're all familiar with it, but I won't go into that. But I want to read this. Verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This is referring to the fact that Christ accomplished victory over sin. He nailed our sins to his cross. But that's not my focus here. Let's look at verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Verse 15 doesn't get mentioned too often. Then verse 16 talks about, you know, that no man therefore judge you in meat or drink and so on. And usually verse 15, sandwiched between those two, kind of gets skipped. I want to focus on verse 15. Who are the principalities and powers? We found out already. Satan and his kingdom, his darkness, the, 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 the hordes of evil angels. And it says Christ did something to them at the cross. He spoiled them. What spoil mean? Disarm, to ruin. Okay, any more? Take away their power. Okay, that's very true. The, the picture I get as well, which is also a meaning. When you spoil, you know, when one army conquers another, they take their spoils, right? The spoils are those things that are captured by the conquering army. 
Christ spoiled them. He disarmed them. All these answers are right, but I just want to enrich it a little bit. Christ did something. His, his work on the cross, not just the cross, because the cross many times in the scriptures is a package. It's the cross and the resurrection. They, they go together. He accomplished something that Paul says here. He made a show of them openly. What's that mean? A public spectacle, a public display to everyone. He made an open show. He disgraced them and defeated them openly and publicly in that event. And the crowning act in that event is the resurrection. You know, it, it, wasn't any, it wasn't some secret announcement made in a corner somewhere. This was open public. The devil knows that. And he's hidden that fact in a secret corner many times. And we treat it as such many times. But what does that really mean? I want to look at that a little bit closer. Because when we look at spoils, there's an interesting uh, picture. I, that's a picture, like I said, that's a picture I get in my mind. You know, a conquering army comes and they take their spoils. They take the, uh, everything that uh, belonged to the enemy belongs to the conquering army. Right. We have a picture of that in, in the book of Daniel. You know, in the book of Daniel, it begins with the siege of Jerusalem in the ki- uh, reign of King Jehoiakim. So Nebuchadnezzar came, he besieged Jerusalem. Finally, he conquered Jerusalem right. and he took the captives to Babylon. These were the spoils. These are captives. But not only that, he took something very precious to the Jews. He went into the temple and he took the articles of furniture as spoils, right? You see, the spoils are the greatest evidence that this army is the winner. He says, we won the battle. Here's the evidence. We have their stuff. Isn't that right? And you can imagine as the king Nebuchadnezzar returned back to Babylon and is walking or marching through the gates of Babylon, the conquering king, welcomed by all the Babylonians there on the walls, he's come conquering. And in his train, here are these captives, right? And in that train, they would have seen this seven-branched candlestick. Someone's probably carrying that. And this table of showbread, right? Is that correct? These are the spoils. And as they would look at that, see, these are the tokens that we have defeated the Israelites. Here is the evidence. We have their spoils. And they would have gone and they put them in a storeroom or whatever he did with them, which of course later on his grandson pulled out and, and desecrated. But th- that's the picture I get in my mind. That's what to spoil really means. Now that's a very important aspect because Christ himself talked about that as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 11 and verse 21. And 22, Luke chapter 11, he says here, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him and taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. That's the picture we're talking about here, right? Who's the strong man that keeps his palace? And who's the stronger man that binds him, that divides his spoils? The strong man is who? Satan. He keeps his palace. He was the strong man of earth. He had he had claimed this dominion as his own. Isn't that right? He says, this is mine. So Christ says, this is what happens. When a strong man keeps his palace, what is required is a stronger man. And when the stronger man comes, he will bind the strong man, defeating him. And as evidence, he will take his spoils and he will divide them. That's a very significant parable. And so, of course, the stronger man is Christ. Well, what about the spoils? If the dominion and kingdom of Satan was this earth, what were his spoils? Or what are his spoils that become divided? And the spoils, of course, are none other than those who have passed into the grave. Because remember something. The Bible said the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin was brought in by who? Adam. 
Adam, of course, but who is the originator, author of sin? It's Satan. And so Satan claimed all those who died as his own. That's right. Isn't that right? Yes. Every person who passed into the grave was his, his dominion, his captive, his property. And we see that very, very clearly in the story of the resurrection of Moses. If you remember, when Christ came down, the Bible talks about it in the book of Jude, Christ came down to resurrect Moses, right? Then there was, the Bible says there was a controversy, there was contention between him and Lucifer over the body of Moses. That's right. Now what was this contention based on? <laughs> you see what happened was Christ here comes Christ, to, uh, the Bible refers to him there by his, his name Michael, right. the archangel Michael, and uh, he's about to resurrect Moses and up pops Lucifer. Yep. Says, whoa, 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 uh, what do you think you're doing? He belongs to me. He's a sinner. You said the wages of sin is death. You have no right to resurrect him. Isn't that right? That's true. Because this is his dominion. This is his captive. This is his property or so he thought. And that's what he claimed. And uh, of course, Christ resurrected him. Christ uh, said, you know, the Lord rebuked the Satan and he resurrected him. And we're going to see on what basis he resurrected him. But the significant aspect of, of that event is this. Perhaps we, we miss it. For the very first time in the entire history of yes. the known universe, yes. someone was about to be brought back from the dead. You realize that? Yes. Moses holds that position. Yes, first one. The very first one. Up to that time, it was a dead end street. Literally. Everyone who went into death never came back. That's right. And the devil yes. thought it's all, they're all going to be his forever. They will miss out on life forever. That's it. They're dead. And so when Christ comes down to resurrect Moses, up he comes and protests because he's afraid now. He says, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> and Christ still does that. Amen. He contended. Why did he do that? Because it was based on the fact that Christ promised to defeat Satan. He did that in the Garden of Eden, right? right yeah. He said, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. And based on that promise, he claimed Moses as a preview. But that promise was not yet accomplished. It was still yet future. When was that accomplished? When was the head of Lucifer crushed and decimated and destroyed? Resurrection, Resurrection morning. And that was announced very loudly in his ears. Very loudly in his ears. And we'll notice the evidence because Christ here said in this parable we just read earlier that, oh, it's right there still. The strong man comes, the, the stronger man comes and he binds the strong man and he divides his spoils. We looked at what the spoils of Satan are. Notice what this prophecy says in Isaiah 26, 19. This is one of those prophecies that don't get talked about too much. Isaiah 26, 19, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is the, as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Amen. Who is speaking through Isaiah here? Christ. He was speaking of his resurrection, yes. but not of his resurrection alone. He's saying when his resurrection occurs, there are dead men who will live together with my dead body. And these dead men, they will arise, they will awake, they will sing, because the earth I'm pointing with my finger. The earth will cast out the dead. the dead. Do you know any event in the history of the life of Christ yes. when this prophecy was fulfilled? Yes. Yes. Okay, we all know that. Matthew 27, we read that the other day. The graves were open. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Amen. Prophecy fulfilled. Amen. 
We don't see Satan objecting like he did with Moses here. <laughs> Is that right? Game over. <laughs> he has been bound. And the evidence is his spoils, his captives are taken and they are divided. Amen. Now, that's very, very significant, brothers and sisters. You see, this event had never happened before in the whole history of the earth, right here. Never before was there a group resurrection. And the group resurrection that happened here was so significant and so startling. It was like the headlines in the newspapers in Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem knew about this. Oh, yeah. Because the people that were raised here were not just anybody. And sometimes maybe we might wonder, you know, who was raised. We have some uh, criteria that help us identify who these people were. You know, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us that the people raised in this special resurrection were faithful men of God from every age. Now think about that for a minute. From every age. That means from even before the flood. And before the flood, you had... People who lived there who were a little bigger than us in size. Right. They were giants, right? So you would have had some giants walking around the city of Jerusalem telling people, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. He rose from the dead. Here's the evidence. I'm alive too. I was dead. And they went through the city and for 40 days they gave witness and testimony that the kingdom of darkness has been defeated. We were captives of Satan. We are now alive. Jesus is the reason. Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, was turned upside down for 40 days. Not only that, you know, giants and so on and whoever else. It wasn't all the righteous, okay? It was a select group. But they were representatives from all ages up to that point. Now, the other criteria, the other qualifier, we're told in the Book of the Arab Ages, is that these were people who had sealed their faith with blood. Yes. In other words, they were... Martyrs who had died for their faith. So God selected high caliber faithful men, right? Who were faithful unto death. And he pulled them out of the grave as evidence and as token that the kingdom of darkness was defeated. And he sent them into the city and said, for 40 days they were witnessing. Now who is the first martyr that's recorded in scriptures? Abel. Abel. So Abel qualifies to be in that group. Fancy that, huh? Abel going around to Jerusalem telling people this is the most Abel, the one they're reading about in the Bible, right? Here he is alive. Now, I'm not saying he was there, but he qualifies, right? That's right. And who's the last martyr that qualifies to be in that group? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who just died maybe a little while earlier, not too long ago. Now imagine that. Imagine if John the Baptist was alive in Jerusalem for 40 days. They all would have recognized him. Now I'm not saying he was there, but he qualifies. He could have been there. Amazing event the resurrection is, brothers and sisters. That was a big headache for Satan. He says, not only is now Christ, but there's now all these people resurrected from the grave. <laughs> you know why? Because Jesus says, Behold, he said to John, I am he that liveth and was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have what? The keys of hell and death. Or, or keys of hell and of death. I had a key in my pocket. I don't have it anymore. <laughs> Jesus says, I have the keys of hell and of death. And as evidence that he won and obtained the key, he went and unlocked a few graves. Isn't that right? Yes, and he said, you come out, you come out, you come out. We're going to prove that this has happened. Amen. And he opened the doors of the grave for all these select people. 
That's exciting stuff, brothers and sisters. Amen. The kingdom of darkness, oh, they were on the run. The, the devil didn't know what to do. He did not know what to do. He was defeated. And up to that point, and not before that point was he defeated. That's the very first time in the history of the universe that you have a group, a selection of people that are resurrected in such a manner. Well, what happened to these people that went to Jerusalem for 40 days? What happened to them? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us. Ephesians 4, 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave yes. gifts unto men. Who ascended on high? Jesus. And it says here, when he did that, he led captivity captive. Who's that? A few, maybe it's a bit hard to understand. Other translations say he led a multitude of captives. He led the ex-captives of Satan as his captives. He divided his spoils. You know what that means? This is how I like to, I like to picture things a lot. This is how I picture these people, wherever they might have been in Jerusalem, scattered. Because, they, you know, Christ didn't raise one or two, right? It says many. And, and they didn't all go walk around as a group. They dispersed to give the witness throughout the city. And on day number 40, something miraculous began to happen. All of a sudden, these people lift off. Right? Because Christ was ascending from the Mount of Olives. They weren't there. They would have been wherever they were in the city of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, lift off, and they have a rendezvous with Christ in the cloud on their way to Jerusalem. That's what it says there. When He ascended on high, He led captivity captive, and of course He gave gifts unto men. But you want to just paint the picture here for you. That's what happened on day number 40 from the resurrection. He led captivity and all these people went up in the train. So it's not, not a literal train, you know what I mean? Uh, of victory with Christ. You see, this was a very significant event. This was the return of the conquering king from his battle with Satan. He has returned as a victor. And the evidence that he has returned as a victor is he has with him the tokens of victory, the spoils of Satan. All these ex-dead people. And you can just picture it in your mind as he's coming, approaching the gates of Jerusalem. Psalm 24 records that. It records the song of when it says, you know, lift up your heads or your gates and be lift up your everlasting doors that the king of glory might come in. So just picture that, you know, here are all the gates and here are all the angels and, and at the gates and on the walls. And here is Christ just coming from earth. And as they look at him coming from earth in his train, they see all these dead people. They're not dead now, but ex-dead people as tokens of his victory over Satan. That's the evidence. And of course, in the book of Revelation, John sees very likely this group of people sitting on 24 thrones around the throne of God. God takes them as treasured possessors. He tells them, you know what? You sit right here next to me. Over you, just put a circle right here. Next to me, you sit right here. Amen. The tokens that my son Amen. has defeated Satan. Yes. No doubt about it. And you know what? That's when Satan, the accuser of the brethren, was cast down. Yes. He lost right. his place in heaven. That's right. But we're not going to get into that right now. But brothers and sisters, I, I just cannot help but think, wow, that's glorious stuff. Amen. Satan has defeated. These people are in heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. The grave, the stronghold of Satan was the grave. The grave has been defeated. That's right. Christ rose, not only him, but he raised all these people with him. That's the power of his resurrection. And that power 
is exercised towards us who believe? That's the question. Do you believe? Do you really believe? You see, the Bible tells us that Christ, by this process, accomplished something. In Hebrews chapter 2, we talked about fear earlier. I want to talk about that just quickly here again. Verse 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, when we go through trial and suffering and, and heartache and turmoil, we have fear. But trial and suffering, the house bills, the kids, the car, the whatever it is, these are not very great fears compared with death. Isn't that right? It talks here about the fact that all of humanity, or their lifetime, they lived in fear. Because through fear of death, we lived in bondage. You know what's the greatest fear of humanity? It's the fear of all fears. Correct? It's the fear of all fears. It's our life. At the end of the day, it's our life that really matters. You know, forget the car, forget the... You know, this is, it's, if it's a life and death issue, if you're about to die, this is the greatest fear. And the amazing thing is this, brothers and sisters, Christ has conquered the fear of all fears. Amen. Therefore, he tells us, don't worry about any lesser fear. Amen. Look to the resurrection. Why? The resurrection accomplished victory over the fear of all fears. Death, done with. What worse could be to happen to us than death? Jesus said, problem solved with death. Therefore, don't worry about all these lesser fears. Don't worry. I can bring you back from the dead. What's the car or the house or the money or the bills or whatever you're going through? What's that to me? Nothing. I conquered death. That's what Peter is trying to do. He's encouraging them. So brothers and sisters, we're going through trials, through suffering. Remember, Christ rose from the dead for the very purpose of showing and proving that Satan has nothing that he can hold us with. Have you ever seen someone on their deathbed who was not a believer? It's a very hopeless, it's a very hopeless and miserable death when people die going into a dark tunnel with no way out. It's the fear of all fears. It is absolutely atrocious. And they struggle and they, they hold on to life. They don't want to let go because there is terror and fear. They don't know what's there. Believers don't have that. Jesus went there and came back out. Hallelujah. Amen. So the fear of all fears is not a fear for us. It shouldn't be. And so all lesser fears should be seen in the same light. That's why the Bible tells us that Christ abolished death. You realize that? Death is abolished. Why should we fear an abolished thing? And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's why the Bible tells us an amazing thing. It says, through Christ we can become more than conquerors. You know, the highest achievement you can gain in the world, at best, is conqueror. Only a Christian can be more than a conqueror. Isn't that right? Amen. You know, we have emperors and we have great men in history and the world, they, they conquer and they are conquerors. Christians are more than conquerors. Why? Christ has won a battle for us that is of immense proportions. He has defeated Satan and we are with him. Amen. He has won that on our behalf. And through him we can be more than conquerors. Amen. Let's keep going. What else does the resurrection accomplish? Romans 1.4 talks about Christ coming of the seed of David. And then it says, And declared to be the Son of God with power 
according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. What declares Christ to be the Son of God with power? The resurrection. The resurrection. Now get this, the resurrection does not make him the Son of God. You know, some people misunderstand this verse. I've talked with people and said, they take me to Romans 1, 4, see, Christ is the Son of God because of the resurrection. No, no, no. The resurrection focuses the fact that he's the Son of God with power. Yes. The key here is power. Yes. It magnified and showed the true magnitude of the power of Christ. And it made this, it says here, it declared this. It really was declared to be the Son of God with power. Who was he declared to be the Son of God with power to? To everyone. Including who? Including the devil especially. That was a powerful proclamation. That was a powerful declaration to the hosts of darkness that this is truly the Son of God. You know, you realize that this was the problem that Satan had with uh, in heaven. You know that. The great controversy is over the Son of God. You know, sadly, as Adventists, we've missed that completely, and we think the great controversy is all about the law. That's a secondary aspect. The Bible, uh, well, the Bible hints at it, but the Spirit prophecy makes it very clear. Satan in heaven rebelled against the authority of the Son. He had a problem with the authority of the Son. Therefore, you have a problem with the law. Obviously, that's there. But we have to put their things in their perspective, because when we just focus on the law, we make the law the whole issue, and if we want to be on the right side of the controversy, we just look to the law. That is not how you get on the right side of the controversy. You get on the right side of the controversy by looking to the Son. Amen. Amen. The Son is a living, powerful Son of God. Amen. That's how you win the great controversy. And then obviously, your loyalty and allegiance to the Son will be manifested in your life being in harmony with His law. Amen. But the issue is not just which law. The issue is an issue of authority. Whose authority are you going to follow? Satan rebelled against the authority of the Son. He wanted to establish his own authority. You see that very clear in the wilderness. He had a problem with the son because twice he came to him and said, if you are truly the son, prove it. Christ didn't do that then. He did it here. And Satan, shut up. He has nothing more to say. He was declared to be the son of God with power. But at the end of those temptations, he came to him and said, I'll give you all these things. He showed him, right? If you... But on worship, what's he trying to say? If you will acknowledge and recognize my, my authority. authority. The great controversy is a battle of authority yes. between the Son of God and between Lucifer. And mingled and mixed and right there with that authority is, of course, the law. But first and foremost, it's a battle of authority. You want to uphold the authority of the Son? You will be faithful to His law. That's how you show that He is authoritative in your life. You want to disregard the authority of the Son? you will be disobedient to his law. That's the ultimate disregard of his authority. You with me? So we want to see things in perspective. You see, when Christ was on earth, right? And he met many people who were demon possessed. You know, they bring, him, uh, they bring these people to him and, and they'll be demon possessed. What's the one thing that always terrified those demons? They said it. We know who you are. Before, sometimes before he even says a word, right? There is some inherent terror in the heart of every demon, and they know it, that they're fighting with the Son of God. And that terror was materialized and multiplied a thousand times over at the resurrection, Amen. when he was declared to be the Son of God with power Amen. to all those demons. We don't realize what happened that morning. We really don't. I'm just trying to paint the picture for you and for me. Let's look at some insights here. 
This is from the Spirit of Prophecy. It says, when Jesus was laid in the grave, Satan triumphed. Did you realize that? Yes. He triumphed when Christ was crucified. Why? Because he just died. He dared to hope that the Savior would not take up, take up his life again. He claimed the Lord's body and set his guard about the tomb, seeking to hold Christ a prisoner. Now, when it says here, he set his guard, that's both physical and spiritual. Make no mistake about it. You know, we see in the pictures, this is just an illustration. There are all these Roman guards, okay, around the prison, uh, around the grave. And uh, not only were there Roman guards, and they sealed the tomb and all that stuff, but Satan had all his guards. That's right. Every demon in the ranks report for duty, Jerusalem, the tomb of Christ. Don't be anywhere else. We're going to hold him. He just died. And he says here, he dared hope that the Savior would not take up his life again. And he claimed Christ's body, and he set a guard. He says, we're going to fight this to the very last. This was the final battle right there. And every demon was there, by says. Every demon was around the cross. Every demon was there. And something very, very significant happened. The quote continues, and I really love the picture that is painted here. It says, he was bitterly angry when his angels fled at the approach of the heavenly messenger. When he saw Christ come forth in triumph, he knew that his kingdom would have an end and that he must finally die. Desire of Ages 782. That's very, very significant, brothers and sisters. On that morning, when the angel came, the angel Gabriel came down. You know, those demons, they just couldn't contain themselves. They just took off every last one of them. And there was Satan left alone to watch Christ come out of the grave and say, I am the resurrection and the life. And he knew right there, it's finished. His kingdom was broken. And he would have seen, and then he might have heard maybe in the background, all these other graves popping open and all these people coming to us. Oh no, it's finished. That's what happened. That's the power of his resurrection. And that's when 40 days later, Christ took all these people up to heaven. And that was his victory march, his entrance into the new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful Savior, a conquering mighty king. He conquered the grave. He conquered Satan. Satan trembled at that. And when God's people take a hold of that power of his resurrection, Satan trembles again. That's why Satan obscures these things. The power of His resurrection is a very, very real and important thing. So important it is that, you know, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not risen, our preaching is vain. That's right. Our faith is vain. Our faith is based on the resurrection. You know why? Because that's the victory. That's when Christ accomplished something that's never been accomplished before. And brothers and sisters, we're living on this side of it. We're living in the glorious light of the accomplished defeat of the kingdom of darkness. Let's not live like we're living before it happened. We have great, great advantages that we don't even realize. Okay, our time is almost there. Let's look quickly at what this has to do with righteousness by faith. You see, let's go back. I'm going to read ahead. I just want you to think with me. When we talk about the truth about God, right? We, we talk about the Father and the Son and the correct understanding of the Spirit. And a lot of people ask the question, well, what's, what's the significance of it? One, one, one person told me once, you know, well, when we get to heaven, we'll find out. You know, it's this way or that way or the other way. But the, the, the key is this. The correct understanding of the truth about God actually 
prepares us and opens the door for us to understand and appreciate righteousness Amen. by faith. Amen. It's actually the key Amen. to righteousness by faith. Amen. And that's not a, an optional thing. If you want to be in the kingdom, your only way there is through righteousness by Amen. faith. And we're going to see that. But I just want us to understand this aspect. You, you know, people say, why you emphasize this? You're divisive. You're trying to cause issues. The issue is we're trying to get to the righteousness of God. Amen. The righteousness which is through Christ by faith. Amen. And the only way to get there is we can understand who Christ is, who the Father is, and who the Spirit is. Amen. And we're going to see that. So it's important to understand the practical application of some of the things we talk about. You know, we don't talk about controversial issues because it's fun to do so. Yes. It's not fun to do so. No. But it is necessary because the devil is gaining a lot more ground than he should. The ground that Satan, that Satan has lost because of resurrection, because of the lethargy of God's people, yeah. they give him a regaining of this ground. You know, when, when a conquering king conquers, you know, the army follows and they are to hold the ground, right? We are failing to hold the ground that Christ has already claimed and conquered. Doesn't Jesus say he will build this church on this rock and the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. We fail so many times. So righteousness by faith is not just some theory that you believe. It is you making serious war against Satan and claiming by faith the ground that already Christ has obtained. You realize that? We fail too often in following the conquering king. He's way off in the distance and we're stuck right here. And all this distance, Satan runs in and occupies. And it's ours. It's already ours by faith. That's what it means to live on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters. That's why the new covenant is a powerful covenant. It's the power of his resurrection. We're living in this side of it. Righteousness by faith. What's all this about? Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. What was man's problem? Sin and death, right? We needed a solution to sin and death. Sin brings death, it causes death. You see, uh, not only were, when Adam sinned, when Adam fell, God had to do a few things. I just want to focus on two here. God had to deal with the sins that Adam had done, the sin that he'd done, of course, and, and the sins of all the human race, everyone else, not just Adam. But also God had to come up with some means to provide life for Adam. Because the life that he had given to Adam, Adam just lost, right? And when we're born into this world, we inherit the dying life of Adam. You realize that? Yes. That's why we need new life. And in this dying life of Adam, we go and commit our own sins. Now, it's very significant to realize that God... Not just had to forgive our sins, which we'll see in a minute, but God had to also provide for us a new source of life. That's why there is a second Adam to provide a new source of life. And then this is what Paul is talking about here. He says, for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, that's what we needed, verily righteousness should have been by that law. And then he equates these two things here. I don't know if you picked that up. What we needed is life, and what we needed is Righteousness. righteousness. In other words, in the reception of life is how we receive righteousness. righteousness. And that life and that righteousness does not come by the law. That's right. It doesn't. Amen. Very significant. Because if there was a law that could do that, God would have done it by. But it's not by law. The law cannot provide life. The law cannot provide you with righteousness. 
So let's give up on trying to get righteousness from the law, okay? Amen. Righteousness is by faith. We need life. When you have life, you have righteousness. And we don't get that from the first Adam. Now this is very, very significant because let's look at another verse. Roman, uh, yeah, that's another one before we get to, to Romans. First Peter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a new birth, right? Amen. The new birth is based on the resurrection. Amen. Why? Because it's the reception of? The life. Of life. Which life? The life of Christ. His life. The life of Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, that we're told that uh, the Spirit of Prophecy says, the life that He laid down in humanity, He takes again and He gives to humanity. Amen. When did He take it again? At the resurrection. And He gives to humanity. That's why we die with Him in baptism. We rise again to newness of life. We receive His life. That's what the new birth is all about. And we receive His life, brothers and sisters. What kind of a life is that? Eternal, immortal. Is it righteous? righteous, absolutely. Hello. Righteousness by faith. That's what righteousness by faith is all That's about. Right. It's the reception of this life Amen. of the Son. Amen. That's why you have to understand that the life is the life of the Son, not someone else. That's right. Amen. That's why we understand that the Spirit is someone else, brothers and sisters. You destroy righteousness by faith. You're saying that who I have here with me now, in me, is not Christ. That's right. It's someone else. That's right. Therefore, you don't have righteousness. He's the only righteous one. Amen. He's the one that accomplished righteousness. You see, I'm going to make a radical statement here. The Trinity doctrine is incompatible with righteousness by faith. They are contrary to each other because it teaches that it is not Christ who lives in you. It is someone else. Now, many people don't realize that. We don't logically think through our theology. But that's what I'm telling you. Righteousness by faith is based on a correct understanding of who Jesus is and who the Spirit is. It is His life, His righteous life. Jesus told His disciples before He left, he said, because I live, you will live also. You will live also. When did he live again? Resurrection. Resurrection. When I have life again, you're going to live. You will receive life. You receive my life, the life of the second Adam. That's why in, in Isaiah, he is referred to as the everlasting father. He's not talking about God the father. He's not talking about the God. He's talking about the fact that he now is the father of all those who will Amen. be born again. Amen. And they receive His life, His righteous yes. life. And all that is based on the resurrection. Amen. Paul said, I want to know the power of His resurrection. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it's righteousness by faith. Yes, it is. It's not the only place. Let's look at a few others. We're, we're almost there, okay? How much time do I have left? Okay, don't worry about it. That's good. Don't worry about it. Forget I asked you. Romans 4.25. <laughs> we're almost there. You're still awake? I know we might be getting a bit hungry. We're almost there. We just want to finish this meal first. Romans 4.25, Christ, of course, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. justification. You ever wondered about that verse? He was delivered. That's on the cross, right? He died for our sins. That's what offenses is. He was raised for our justification. So dying was not enough. That's right. We're saved by his life. That's right. There was a, there was a whole message on that. I just want to explain that very quickly a little bit, if I, if I can here in the time I have. Jesus' death on the cross provides atonement for our sins, the committed sins. 
His death does not provide us with life yet. No. You see, what we need is not just forgiveness for our that's sins. Right. That's right. That's because when you're forgiven, your sins are forgiven, that's great. But you still possess in you the dying life of Adam. You're still going to die. You not only had to have atonement for your sin, forgiveness for your sins, you also had to have a new source of life. Amen. That new source of life is what happened when he was raised again to Amen. new life. Amen. Now this new life he gives you, and that's the reason why he was raised for our justification. What's another word for justification? Righteousness. Righteous or righteousness. His resurrection is the basis of our righteousness. Why? Because that's where we find new life. That's where we find righteousness. And how do we obtain it? By faith. You don't go to the law to obtain it. You go to the source of life. You go to Christ, the Son, to obtain it. Resurrection is the basis of righteousness by faith. So my challenge to you is, do we know the power of His resurrection? I'm going to keep asking that. That's the whole point of this. Let's look at another verse. Romans 10.9. I really love this verse. Paul says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. saved. Is it a salvational point? Yes. yes. There is a, you know, it's a very salvational point. But why is that? Because you, you see, a lot of people, most, if not all, some don't, I don't know, but most Christians believe in the resurrection. Yes. The great majority of them. That's right. We know that they won't all be saved. That's so Paul here is talking about a belief in the resurrection in a biblical way. Yes. You see, believing in the resurrection is not just a mental assent to the fact. Yeah, believe. To believe in the resurrection is to experience and live the power of the resurrection. In other words, that Christ's life is risen and living in you. In us. Amen. That's the biblical belief in the resurrection. Amen. And you know what Paul says? If you believe that, you won't be lost. Amen. This is the antidote for being lost. He doesn't say, if you believe these doctrines. He doesn't say, if you subscribe to this statement of beliefs. He doesn't say, if you do this or if you do that. He says, if in your heart, you believe that Christ is risen, that God the Father raised Him, you will be saved. You know why? Because if you believe with all your heart, by faith, you have the life of Christ. Amen. And so long as you have the life of Christ in you, Amen. you cannot be lost. Yes. You realize that? Amen. Amen. You cannot be lost. And of course, the life of Christ in you will manifest the fruit of obedience Amen. and righteousness and all these things. But the key is that, do you have the life? The Bible says, he that hath the Son has life. life. Now notice what the next verse says, and it links them very well together. For with the heart man believeth unto what? Righteousness. Righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So in your heart you believe in the resurrection. In your heart you believe unto? Righteousness. Righteousness. It's the belief that Christ lives. Not up there in heaven, long way away. That he lives in you. Amen. That he is truly come. And that he has come in the flesh. That's our last verse. So I'm just going to close here with just a few thoughts to wrap it all together. Brothers and sisters, this is the only way, this is the only means to obtain righteousness that is satisfactory to God. Amen. There is another counterfeit, and Paul experienced that, where he tried to obtain righteousness from the law. He said, I used to live as a Pharisee, and when it came to the law, I was blameless. But I realized that all these things were not gained to me. They're actually lost. And I realized that there is a righteousness of a different order. 
You know, there's so much confusion, sadly, today. The Bible uh, presents to us two sources of righteousness. You realize that? One is the law, and one is of God. You realize that? In the book of Romans. The righteousness of the law is our own works. But the Bible calls all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The righteousness which is of God is by faith. Too many times we are caught in the trap of trying to get righteousness from the law. And we go knocking at the law. And we look at the law. And we plead with the law. And we fight with the law. And we trouble ourselves with trying to bear the law to, benef- to, to produce some righteousness. And all that righteousness is unacceptable to God. You know why? Because a sinner can never obtain righteousness from the law. That's right. You already already have a bad credit. You already start off with a bad credit. No matter how much obedience you produce, you have bad credit. What you need, brothers and sisters, is life. That's what the verse in Galatians said. If there was a law that could give life, God would have given that. But righteousness would have been that by that law. What we need is life. What we need is righteousness. That can only come from a living person. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the source of that new life. That's why it's called righteousness by faith. Brothers and sisters, that's what the preaching of the resurrection really is. You know, the apostles in the early church, you see it all through the book of Acts. All they talked about is the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. We don't do that as much anymore. Because the power of the resurrection was a living and real thing for them. Is it a living and real thing for us? The devil hates the preaching of the resurrection. More so, he hates those who live by the power of the resurrection. Because it's a repeat of what he experienced on Sunday morning. The devil has great fears about that. He has a phobia about that. Is your life giving him a phobia or not? That's the question. Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. So brothers and sisters, let's not forget that. I want to challenge you with that. The kingdom of Satan has been destroyed. Amen. Let's claim the ground that Christ has already at great cost claimed for us. Let us know him and the power of his resurrection. Amen. That's the only way that we can have righteousness by faith. Let's pray together. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.